Good morning, Grace family. It's always a pleasure to be with you and a privilege to be able to bring you God's word today. And full disclosure, this sermon is actually a group project. I had to solicit a ton of help uh, because I remember we actually went through the book of Genesis a few years ago and I went back to the sermon archive and I was like, wait, who preached on Genesis 12? And it was Kenny Clark. I re-listened to the sermon, and it was a really good sermon. I was encouraged by it. You should go back and listen to it. I was also discouraged by it because it was like, oh, man, now what am I going to say? Good grief. So anyway, so thank you for those of you who kind of helped me put this together. I don't have time to name all of you. Uh, Depending on how this morning goes, you may not want your name attached to it anyway. Okay. So let us pray. Father God, thank you for another day of life that we could gather as your people and worship you and hear from your word. May your spirit do his work. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the holidays used to make me absolutely miserable. And it's because of my background, growing up in a broken home, not having a father, an abusive stepfather, uh, mom working long hours, my sister and I, had our, we had our own room, but we used it to really just isolate it from one another. We hardly did anything together as a family. So this time of year rolls around, I start seeing commercials of people getting together, wearing ugly sweaters, opening Christmas gifts uh, on Christmas morning, enjoying one another's company. And I would think, man, that ain't true. That's not real, at least not in my life. But it was a reminder of what I didn't have. It was one of the most depressing and lonely times in my life. But Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything. And when I became a Christian, my entire paradigm shifted. My perspective was transformed. And although my circumstances didn't change, I changed. I started making different decisions based on that transformed mind, and slowly but surely, my circumstances also changed. I attended Biola University, and I would have never attended Biola had I not become a Christian. I met my wife there. I not only married a hot, blonde Christian babe, but I also married into her family. And as a result, I received a new family. I was a member of a new family. And with that new family, I inherited a godly legacy and tradition that I didn't have before. Now, the holidays, I look forward to them. It's the best time of the year for me. And I have a family of my own. And we're at the point where our kids submit this long Christmas gifts list and my wife and I chuckle at reading through them, going through Amazon, trying to figure out what we can get, what we can get, what we won't get. It's great. I, I love it and I enjoy it. And the pain of the past feels so distant, I hardly think about them. I'm too busy enjoying the present. And in our passage and theme today, we're going to see the promise of God to Abraham. And how it was a catalyst for the covenant of grace meant to redeem a broken world. And through that covenant, anyone could become a member in the family of God by faith in Christ. And receiving an inheritance 
that comes with it. And the problem outlined in the first 11 chapters of Genesis shows the advancement of sin. The fall in the garden, the flood in the days of Noah, the building of the Tower of Babel, and how sin was not only destroying the world and society, but destroying the people itself. Last week, you heard Rob Lister preach and mention Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a seed that will eventually crush the head of the serpent. That promise now continues in the promise to Abraham. That through Abraham, the Lord is gathering for himself a people to call his own. And through that people, he will preserve this line, this promise seed that eventually becomes Jesus, the Son of God. And we're going to see God also promise a land, a nation, and blessing. Because God's people need a place to call home, to be distinct from the world while reaching the world itself. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so the first question to help us understand this passage is, well, what is a covenant? This is a weighty promise. So what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is an agreement between two parties binding them mutually to actions on each other's benefit. Again, a covenant is an agreement between two parties, binding them mutually to actions on each other's benefit. Now, theologically speaking, when it's talking about God and man, it's a gracious undertaking entered into by God for the benefit and blessing of humanity. And God does this by committing himself to the obligations in this Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant was established in the obedient faith of Abraham and was carried out by the patriarchs. God confirmed his unilateral, unconditional covenant with Abraham when he alone walked through the pieces of sacrificed animals in Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15, there was this ritual. They took several animals, cut them in half, put them in two piles. Typically, two Members making a covenant would walk between these pieces, symbolizing that if any one of them would break this covenant, that it would happen to them like these animals. So ratifying a covenant was serious business. The uniqueness in Genesis 15, when God was making this covenant with Abraham, is that God put Abraham to sleep, and he alone walked through the pieces of animals, binding himself to this covenant. So blessing is promised over and over again to Abraham and his descendants. And this repetition of the promise runs like a thematic thread through the book of Genesis. And there are several aspects to this Abrahamic covenant. Now I fell in a rabbit hole studying this. I had to dig myself out. That's why I asked for other people to help. So, But I'm just going to focus on three aspects of the Abrahamic covenant. I leave the 27-point sermons to Eric 
I don't know how he fits it all in his head, but my threshold is about three. So I'm just going to talk about three points this morning. So one is the land, the promise of the land. Two will be the promise of a nation. Three, blessing to Abraham. Then once we go through what these things are, we'll go back again and see what it is in the light of the new covenant when Christ has fulfilled those things. Okay, so when Abraham left his country, his relatives, and his father's house, God promised that he would possess a new land, be a father of a new people, and gain an inheritance that is far better. So first, land. Land. What is the land? Okay, so the Lord said in Genesis 13, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Genesis 13, 14 through 17. And again, in Genesis 17, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Genesis 17, 8. And the promise of the land would later continue to be affirmed and reaffirmed in Isaac and Jacob, and again through the book of Genesis. So why was the land important? Why this promise of a land? Well, the land was going to be a part of Israel's identity. It's going to be used to shape their identity and ethnic heritage. It was a place of worship where they would be in the presence of God. And throughout the Old Testament, after Israel was exiled, they longed to be back in the homeland because they longed to be in the presence of God. But the land wasn't merely a two-dimensional place in time and space that we enter, but a dynamic locale that the people of God would affect and be affected by. It gave purpose by way of taking the land, changing the land by cleansing the land. In other words, identity and place are inevitably intertwined. Everyone needs a place to call home, and God was going to give his people a home. God is giving Israelites a place to call their own and a place to worship him. And this promise of the land includes both physical space and national identity. And this land was to facilitate their relationship with the Lord. In terms of purpose, after God gives the initial promise to Abraham, Abraham built an altar. Chapter 12, verse 7, at the center of the land of Shechem. He builds this close to a, to a Canaanite shrine. Then he goes east of Bethel and builds another altar to the Lord. Finally, in Genesis 13, he goes along the Negev southern border and then he builds another altar at Hebron, chapter 13, verse 18. So after this promise, he's going to these pagan places and, and starts building altars. So why is Abraham building altars to the Lord next to Canaanite shrines at strategic locations of the land? John Calvin says this, that Abram endeavored as much as lay in him to dedicate to God every part of the land to which he had access and perfume it with the odor of faith. 
So the Lord gives Abraham the land of the Canaanites in order to claim it for the kingdom of God. The task was proclamation of their faith through worship, and these verses describe Abraham's relationship with God. And although Abraham came out of a pagan background, had a pagan heritage, he still loved the Lord and received the grace of God. He responded to the grace of God in obedience. And this also describes Abraham's relationship with the world. Abraham built these altars in pagan places. He wasn't afraid, and Abraham's presence formed a tension between him and the Canaanites. The Canaanites had occupied the land in verse 6, chapter 12, and at initial read, it may seem harmless that they mentioned the Canaanites, but throughout the book of Genesis, they were antagonists. And Abraham's promised land was inhabited by others, and it was inhabited by pagans. So that raises the question, well, how is this promise of the land going to be fulfilled? Later in the Old Testament, we do find out that Israel finally took the land of Canaan in the book of Joshua. But that didn't last. Years later, they lost it again in the exile. So some would say that this fulfillment is still lingering. So there, you have the land. Now you have the nation. You have the nation. And in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Okay, so what is a nation? That'll help us understand this. So two aspects of what a nation is. Well, first, a nation is typically a large body of people unified by history, culture, and language inhabiting a particular territory. It's a people with shared heritage and tradition. Nations have defined boundaries and borders and distinct government entities. Yes, borders are a thing. You can't have them. You can't have nations without them. Second, Another aspect of nationhood is creedal in nature, meaning having a set of beliefs and values that everybody agrees upon. For example, someone who isn't born in America could still become an American through the naturalization process. My mom did that as an immigrant. She became an American citizen. So being an American is not an ethnic heritage or even a location of origin, but adherence to a set of beliefs written in the United States Constitution. So in some ways, Israel as a nation was much like the first description. But true Israel, those who have the faith of Abraham, was much like the second description. Again, identity uh, and place are closely intertwined. And the land is a physical location. The nation is physical descendants. So as we move from land to nation, think the movement from place to people. So now, when it comes to people, God compares Abraham's descendants to the dust of the earth, the stars of the heavens, the sand of the seashore, that Abraham will be a father of many nations. And they'll have a royal line that'll be a part of the kingdom. And as this nation was a physical body with shared heritage and tradition, and as I said earlier, the promise of the land had a difficult start because the land was occupied in the same way, the promise of a great nation and having many descendants to Abraham also started with difficulty and seemed to be hampered by Sarah's barrenness. And oftentimes, God prefaces his great work with extreme difficulties. He does this to display his sovereignty and his glory and to make us trust in him, to reveal more of his character. 
And in the end, when it's all said and done, the only explanation could be God did it. And throughout Old Testament history, the people of God faced many difficulties, much of which was by their own doing. Some of it wasn't, but God still remained faithful to them. Think of the difficulty Israel went through in their history. Coming out of the Exodus, God liberated them from slavery and suffering and oppression. And this marked the initial stages of the fulfillment of this divine promise of nationhood. Israel, on their way out of Egypt, plundered the Egyptians, taking wealth with them to lay the foundation of what will be a nation. But the Egyptians pursued them. They were trapped, and God miraculously parted the Red Sea that they would safely cross, using that same Red Sea to crush their enemies. Finally, the establishment of Israel as a nation under a theocracy, the giving of the commandments to Moses in Mount Sinai, followed by the fall and idolatry and the worship of the golden calf. Then you have the wandering in the wilderness, an entire generation nearly dying off, finally entering into the promised land, conquering Jericho under the leadership of Joshua. Then you have the rise of the judges, that they were going to be stewards and leadership of Israel, but yet Israel wanted to be like the other nations. No, that wasn't the plan. You were supposed to be a light to the other nations, not want to be like the other nations. They wanted a king, and they got a king. First Saul, then David. David, even after a man's own heart, fell into sin, and that sin started to take root in the kingdom. You have the building of the temple under the reign of Solomon, but yet you still had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, which led to the eventual split of the kingdom that followed the evasion and the exile. You have the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom. You have the Babylonian captivity in the southern kingdom. Now you have the people of God being led away, assimilated into a foreign land, into a foreign culture, in a foreign world, on the brink of losing their ethnic and national identity. Finally, being allowed to go back to their homeland, but a land that they no longer owned, to try to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple only to fall well short of its former glory. And through it all, through it all, God reminded them through the prophets of the Abrahamic covenant, and he says through Hosea, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be, numbered or, cannot be measured or numbered. And in a place where it is said to them, you are my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, The children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And when the Old Testament distinguishes Judah and Israel, Judah is referred to the southern kingdom. Israel is referred to the northern kingdom. So here already the split, but they will be gathered again. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And again in Isaiah Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Isaiah 60, verse 21. So here, there is hope despite difficulty. God is faithful to his covenant people. He will preserve for himself a remnant. So there, you have the land, you have the nation, now you have the blessing along With the promise of the land and becoming a nation, God promises to bless Abraham. And in him, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So on the surface of it, what, what, what is this blessing? Well, it means bestowing prosperity with respect to the fertility of the land and fertility of life. It was a gift of empowerment to achieve what was promised in both land and nation. The land was going to be good. It was going to be flowing with milk and honey. Abraham was going to have many descendants. Yes, the blessing was ultimately spiritual, but it also included material blessing as well. And I worry sometimes that in our attempt to distance ourselves from the prosperity gospel, we overreact. We overreact to that. We overreact to it by not speaking about material blessing at all or going to the other extreme and thinking like private property is a bad thing or, or, or wealth is a bad thing, that being impoverished is somehow more spiritual. You know, when the Bible says to help the poor, you know who can't help the poor? Other poor people. So let's not go to these extremes. Let's confront error with good theology and confront it with the truth. So this was material blessing to Abraham. And this material blessing is the reality of embodiment, meaning that we're not just spiritual beings, but we're physical beings. And God created our physicality to be good. There's a massive emphasis on embodied practices in both the Old and New Testament. Why would God care at how the temple was built? Why would he set up a sacrificial system and teach his people how to handle purity and impurity when it comes to things like blood? It may seem strange to us, but these things shaped the embodied mind and gave direction to Israel on how to be obedient to God, how to relate to God how to see the character of God in these practices. And we have such things in the New Testament like baptism, communion, gathering for worship, corporate worship as a church, week in, week out. And we do this regularly because these embodied practices help our understanding of who God is and what he's done for us. We need to be reminded of this. And we need to do this regularly. We need to come physically because we are physical beings. So these material blessing is a form that we experience the goodness of God. Clearly, we live in a broken world. We do. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Materialism could be an issue. It could become sin. Of course it can. But through material blessing, Israel experienced satiation in a world of famine. Comfort in a world of turmoil. Rest from hard labor. You know, God instituted the Sabbath for man, acknowledging that we're finite beings, that we need to rest and we need to trust in him. Know that back then in the ancient Near East, a day off was unheard of. It was perplexing. The neighboring nations looked at Israel and thought of them as lazy. Man, look at these bums taking an entire day off. Man, there's work to be done. They're doing nothing. It was strange, but God instituted it for them. Of course, selfish hoarding of these material blessings could become bad. Selfishness, not being generous. But all these material blessings show Israel the goodness of God, that he cares for their needs and that he delights in the enjoyment of their life. And that ultimately, these material blessings were meant to turn them back to God in gratitude and finding their ultimate satisfaction 
in him. It's like when your child opens up that gift Christmas morning. And in their excitement, they turn to you and hug you and embrace you. That's what it is for us when he blesses us materially, that we turn back and realize the source of that gift. And as that child turns back to enjoy that gift, you delight in their enjoyment, knowing that you were the source of it. And that's just a glimpse of the heart of our Heavenly Father towards us. So, implications. Okay, so that sounds all interesting, Junior, but so what? Okay, implications. Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything. So the promise to the seed, the promised seed to Adam, preserved in the line of Abraham, did eventually come in the work and person of Christ. So these temporal aspects of the physical land, of a physical nation, and the blessing were mere shadows of God's ultimate purpose in bringing eternal realities to light, eternal realities of an eternal habitation, that all people in Christ are one people, that we are blessed not just materially, but by justification, by faith in Christ. And because of Jesus being born under the law, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life from birth to death, dying on the cross, resurrecting on the third day, appeasing the wrath of God, conquering sin and death. And in conquering sin and death, he made a way for us to never experience spiritual death ever again. For those who put their faith in Christ shall have no condemnation. Because Jesus changed everything, so the message of the gospel has changed everything. Now let's go back to these promises from a new covenant perspective and how Christ has fulfilled these things. So then the land, again, was supposed to be a part of Israel's identity. The land came with its own characteristics. And how land, how Israel interacted with the land actively and how they responded manifested their faith or faithlessness. And it was a place of God's presence. But the scriptures teach that the promise of the land was always meant to be understood more than a physical piece of property. And here, David, even while he was ruling in this land as a king, had conquered the Canaanites already. He says this, For the Lord loves justice, for he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell on it forever. And here, even in the Apostle Paul in Romans in the New Testament, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that they would inherit the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Inherit the world. The promise of the land has become the promise of eternal dwelling in God's presence. And Christ fulfills the, pro- pro- the promise of the land by granting us access to God through his sacrifice and atonement on the cross. And no longer do we need a land, but we get to God and we could approach the throne of grace because Jesus is now our high priest. So what's an application of the land? Well, we conquer the land. Whoa, Junior, I'm a little uncomfortable with that type of language. 
Let me assure you, we don't conquer the land in the same way in the Old Testament through force and violence. No, that's not how we do it. But we do, however, in the same way God calls Abraham to go from your country to a place I will show you. Jesus now calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So we take the land by proclaiming the gospel. And we change the land by leading more people to Christ. We stay obedient to his word, worshiping him as a gathered and redeemed people. It's regeneration, not revolution, that the peoples of the world will come to know the Lord. And listen to Jesus. Jesus speaking to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to the whole world to, to try those who dwell in the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you, have, what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Revelation 3, 10 through 12. So we conquer the land by patient endurance, by staying true and obedient to the word of God. So land and now nation, yes, a nation, a large body of people united in history and culture and heritage and language, united by a set of beliefs. And there's an ethical, ethnic connection with shared heritage and tradition and descendants. That is still true of the nation, but Jesus has now broadened that definition. He broadens it. And here in Galatians 3, even so, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the, justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So we're not a nation restricted by land or ethnicity, but we're a family of God through faith. We've been grafted into the promises of Abraham. So, what's the implications of that? Well, there's a story. So Monique Dursum, she's uh, a dear friend of mine. Uh, we were undergraduates together at Biola. We still keep in touch. She posted something on Facebook that I was like, oh, man, I got to call her about this one. So uh, she recently attended a theology conference, and they're talking about these different t topics. They have this Q&A, and she's trying to ask these questions. And uh, more than one speaker says, oh, you know, we really can't engage because we're not of the same social location. I think that was the term, social location. Meaning, so she's a black woman. They're not a black woman. So, oh, we can't really speak into your experience. And she's like, well, we're Christians, right? Well, can, can we speak to brothers and sisters in Christ? We're like, uh, no, not really. Um, so, I mean, I'm sure these people meant well, and it was coming from a good place. I want to affirm that. But she was basically put in this subcategory, which she didn't even put herself in. 
And ultimately, functionally speaking, you're just resurrecting walls of division that weren't meant to be there. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for all are one in Christ. Galatians 3.28. Now, I want to be clear about something. That verse doesn't mean we're all the same. It doesn't mean we're all the same. I was talking to Jacob Daniel. Jacob, you in here? Or maybe he'll be in second service. I don't know. I was just talking to Jacob last week. There's some truth to this idea of social location, right? There's no way I could ever understand what it is to be an Indian. And he can't understand what it is to be Thai. And And there's some truth to that. There's different experiences. There's people that come, like my mom, from another country here and had to make adjustments. There, there's something to not fully understanding that. And we can approach each other in humility, trying to understand one another's in different experiences, different cultures. Sit down and say, yeah, tell me, how, what's that like? That's very different. But never in a way that supersedes our oneness in Christ. Imagine if you brought that paradigm into the church. Imagine the elders needing to exercise church discipline or member care, but couldn't do it because they're a different social location. What am I going to do in my own marriage? We're not of the same social location. What am I going to do with our children who are biracial? What are they supposed to think? How am I supposed to interact with my adopted son who doesn't share my ethnicity or my wife's? See, that stuff destroys churches, families, and societies. And the Great Commission says to go make disciples of all nations, not only baptizing them in the name of the Father and Holy Spirit, but teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. So we go to the nations saying there's one law, one God, and one word of God, and we need to submit under it. I've shared uh, this story several times. I, I think it's worth sharing again. So my mom came to faith a few years after I did. And you know who invested in her spiritual growth? Korean people, Hispanic people, white people. She had questions, and she would read the Bible and had more questions. They would invest in her spiritual growth. She took what they invested in her and gave it back to her people. Oh, she had this particular passion for Thai people, knowing that her ethnicity and her culture was a gift from God, and she loved it and she enjoyed it. She shared the gospel with everybody. You couldn't have a conversation without her for more than a few minutes until Jesus came out. She wanted to know if you were a Christian. If you didn't, you were about to hear the gospel. And if you were a Christian, let us worship together. Yes, rejoice. She had a hard life. But man, Jesus changed everything. Jesus changed everything for her. So there's one time we're in Thailand. Uh, my uncle's there. They're extremely wealthy and uh, successful businessmen. So one of my uncles uh, assigned a driver to us that we're going to drive everywhere we wanted to. His name is Suted. My mom led him to the Lord. One time it was lunch. We we're at this mall in Bangkok and we we're going to go to this food court and we we're going to eat. And she just says, Suted, you need to come join us to have lunch. It's lunchtime. So understand something. There's still a caste system in Thailand. You don't fraternize with the help. So as we're sitting 
together eating this meal. I'm seeing Suted. He's like sweating bullets, you know, knowing he's committing a tat- uh, cultural taboo, and everybody's walking by. You know, I know he's just, he's, he's just nervous. I was this close to just telling, telling my mom, hey, man, let him go. He's about to throw up. He can't enjoy his meal. Man, he's turning pale. And before I could say that, my mom gently reaches out to him, catching on that he's freaking out, and says, Suted, I know you think you're going to get in trouble with your boss. But remember, if you get in trouble with your boss, your boss is going to get in trouble with me. Don't forget who his big sister is. I'm your boss's boss. Woo! Woo! Have you ever met my mom? I was just, you know, yay, hi, little Asian petite lady. But when it came to the gospel, she was a lion, man. She was absolute lying, you know. And, and there was something about her that she was so discipled well that she could enjoy the gift of her ethnicity. She was proud to be a Thai woman. And Thai people, you got to know, are extremely nationalistic. If you ever fly into Bangkok and come out of the airport, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see statues and paintings of this rich cultural heritage. You're going to see people in their cultural garbs greeting you in the Thai language, wanting you to come, wanting to share in their culture. The crazy thing is we want you to appropriate our culture. I keep hearing I'm supposed to be offended by that for some reason. But we want you to, to come in and learn about culture. We want to share our culture. At the same time, my mom knew where the line of demarcation was, where she could embrace it, enjoy it fully, and at the same time, recognizing some parts of it were incompatible to Christianity and the gospel, like a caste system, like at the foot of the cross, we're all equal. And there's no partiality that God will show us and that we should not show each other. My mom was amazing like that. So we're one in Christ. And that should be the driving force of true equality. So blessing along with the promise of the land became a promise of a nation. And now the promise to bless Abraham and in him all the families shall be blessed. And this promise, this blessing that empowered him to be prosperous in his pursuit of the land and the nation. Now, Jesus, the blessing is well beyond land and nation. The blessing is now justification in Christ by faith for every tongue, tribe, and nation. For all who put their faith and trust in Christ are Abraham's offspring and heirs to the promise. Galatians 3.29. And not just justification by faith, but every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places because he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he adopted us. Through Christ in him, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention in him with a view of administration suitable to the fullness of times, the gathering of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the first when the Jewish people hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in him we also, the Gentiles in the flesh, having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed we were sealed in him in the Holy Spirit of promise with a view of redemption to God's possession to the praise of his glory. So in summary, we've been chosen, predestined, adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, freely bestowed glorious grace, redeemed, forgiven of our trespasses, lavished on with riches upon riches upon riches of grace, for where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Sealed by the Holy Spirit, not only ensured that we are indeed God's possession until the day of redemption, but now indwelt by the Spirit. And in the depths of my own depravity, being stuck in the sludge of my own wickedness, being unable to cry out to God, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into my heart that now I could cry out, Abba, Father. And remember, when we received these blessings, remember at that time we were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of a promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, for he himself is our peace and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, a law of commandment contained in ordinances that we could not fulfill, that we were unable to fulfill, that he did on our behalf, reconciling us to God, now abolishing in his flesh, making the two, the Jew and the Gentile, into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one God, in one body to God through the cross. And he came and preached the gospel of peace to both those far and near. Because now we have our access to God. Through him. And because of that access to God, we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the longing of God's presence has changed now. Because the Spirit dwells in us and each of us are being fitted together into a holy temple in the Lord. And as we gather as his people, we experience God's presence. Because when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. So it's no longer a physical temple made with hands. But a temple made of living stones prepared for a holy priesthood. We are now a nation of priests and prophets, a nation of priests that minister to one another like priests and proclaiming the word like prophets, speaking a prophetic word into the world. 
And as we look in the world, read the headlines, or get on Twitter, we could easily conclude what a dumb time to be alive. What a dumb time to be alive. And with each piece of legislation being passed, it's so apparent now that we are exiles in a foreign land. But I say this, there's never been a better time to be alive. Because what has been kept hidden, the mystery has been fully revealed. Fully revealed in other generations was not made known to the sons of men that has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets laying the foundation for the church and us building upon that foundation, advancing the church and therefore advancing the kingdom. It's been fully revealed and what the patriarchs only saw in glimpses, we now see fully. And here in Hebrews 11, these all died not receiving or had not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that homeland from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what God builds, no man can destroy. What God builds becomes everlasting. And every time kingdom realities shine forth, we have to celebrate it, highlight it, glory in it, bask in the wonder of the Spirit working through his people. I think of our baptism services. And when I see some of you baptizing your children, that warms my heart to no end. I was talking to Jason Litzauer. Are you here, Jason? You're on that side. Okay. Oh, there you are, Jason. I was just talking to Jason a couple weeks ago. He baptized Hannah recently. And uh, I was telling him, I remember the day they brought her home. She had this heart condition, and they knew it. They took her in. They wanted her to be a part of the family. And as soon as they landed, they went straight to chalk, and she had heart surgery. And here, years later, being baptized, sharing her testimony, how God has changed her heart. You can't script that any better. Because it's not merely making physical descendants. It's making spiritual descendants, fulfilling the great commission. And it should bother us. It should really bother us that we're not baptizing more new believers. We need to share the gospel with our neighbors, with our family members, with our coworkers. We're called to make disciples. We see the vision of God for human history in the Abrahamic covenant, fulfilled in Christ. We know the destination, and we have to get there. Being here is not enough. Let's move forward. I think, I think of Trent. Are you in here, Trent? I think of Trent. I don't know how, much, how, how, many, how many of you know his story, but he, he, just, he just called the church and, and he says, man, like Jesus changed my life. I got to talk to somebody. He's looking through, through, through Yelp, find, trying to find churches. I was like, ah, I never even think to leave a review on Yelp for churches. <laughs> Kenny Clark 
gets on the call. He calls me, Luke Shackelford, Rick Floyd. We're like, man, hey, Trent, let's go. We're sitting in Kenny's backyard. Share your story, Trent. And here he is resonating with my story, being a couple young hotheads in a broken home, not knowing what to do with our anger. He harnessed it through MMA fighting. I did it through basketball because I can't take a punch. <laughs> Whoa, MMA fighting. I, I wasn't that angry. <laughs> but here he is. His life changed. And I remember Rick Floyd baptizing him. I still have the picture. And then just a few weeks ago, Susan, are you here, Susan? Maybe she's the second service. So, when we say, hey, turn and greet one another, so I meet Susan. It's like, hey, how you doing? What's going on? How did you hear about grace? And then she says, my son's personal trainer invited me. And I said, personal trainer? You're not talking about Trent, are you? She's like, yes, Trent. His life changed, and I want some of that. She doesn't know this. But those were the exact same words my mom said about me. What happened to this kid, this angry teenager yelling at her, cussing her out all the time, not wanting her to do, and all of a sudden he stops? Wait, what? My mom would think, like, I didn't do anything different. Something happened. It's the power of the gospel. We need to share it. We need to fulfill this great commission. We need to highlight those times where God is glorified through it. And while we speak often of individual sinners coming to faith, and as important as that is, that is only the first step. Much of Scripture is devoted to speaking about the nations coming to salvation. And this should give us hope, optimism, direction, purpose, fervor, courage, so let us conquer the land, be the people of God, bless the nations and the families of the earth by fulfilling the Great Commission. As we make spiritual descendants, we're building up the next generation of those who will propagate the gospel to fight, to protect, and preserve the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to the nations, knowing that eventually the nations will come to the Lord. For God the Father said to his son Jesus, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth shall be your possession. And that time will come when Christ claims those things. The prophecy was given back in Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation will worship before him, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This promise will become a reality for all the promise of God. Find their yes in him. And that is why through him we could utter our amen to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for a clear vision of human history. May we be obedient to fulfill that mission. In Jesus' name, amen.